Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. Harlan Crow, the billionaire who gave Justice Clarence Thomas a yacht vacation worth $500,000, bought Thomas's mother a house and paid for his nephew's education, among other very expensive goodies, says all these enormous gifts are a sign of deep friendship. In a recent interview, Crow seemed flabbergasted that people are questioning his well-intentioned generosity toward one of the nine Supreme Court justices, who wield truly transcendent power over 330 million people. But that's insane. How can a rich political donor give hundreds of thousands of dollars to a Supreme Court justice without any disclosure whatsoever? How can Thomas possibly be, or even seem to be, impartial when encircled by Harlan Crow and his powerful friends, all with deep, interwoven economic and political interest. The crisis of legitimacy at the Supreme Court is yet another emerging threat to our democracy. The court's approval ratings have collapsed. Its authority now questioned and rejected by people disgusted with this court's almost monarchical power and lack of accountability. Today, I speak with U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, He's one of the most vocal senior senators on the Judiciary Committee. He has been pushing for reforms to the court, reforms that could help this court restore its public support and prestige, reforms that perhaps could help repair this essential pillar of our democracy. Here's my conversation with Senator Whitehouse. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, welcome to the X-Ray. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you, sir. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you because I guess like many Americans, I'm very concerned about the Supreme Court. Yeah, and with good cause. Yeah, it, it seems that way, right? Uh, the news that has been reported recently, but it, this has a long thread, uh, at least a decade, uh, regarding Justice Thomas. ProPublica has said that there's been a series of payments made by a gentleman named Harlan Crow that have not been reported by the justice, and there are indications that this could be problematic. Is there a problem here in terms of the ethics and, frankly, corruption at the court? There is a very grave problem, and I would actually describe it as a very grave series of problems starting with the individual omissions that Justice Thomas should have disclosed and didn't, up to the larger issue of the Supreme Court having no ethics investigative or enforcement process, so they can make it up as they go along and do. And then that connects to the larger problem of the influence circle of dark money interests that have surrounded the court. So, yeah, there's a lot to pick apart. Well, let's pick apart some of it. The allegations that ProPublica has uh, published and that is, are not being denied, as far as I know, by the justice are that uh, his mom's house was bought by Mr. Crow, that his grandnephew's education was paid by Mr. Crow. And perhaps even more disturbing is that Mr. Crow has paid uh, through different vehicles for Ginny Thomas's different jobs through a lengthy period of time. How is this not uh, an indication of corruption? Well, certainly by the Founding Fathers' broad definition of corruption, it absolutely is. And when you measure it against the Judicial Code of Ethics, it's certainly an ethics violation. And the excuses that have been made to justify both the gifts and the non-disclosure 
stand up very poorly to scrutiny. So it gives off the odor of there's a lot more to hide than we have seen. If the justice had disclosed these payments, uh, presumably would be embarrassing, but would that make them legal? That would be a different question, and that relates to would they be legal? Should Did he declare them as income? Uh, would it be legal? Did the donor declare them as gift tax? Would it be legal? Were there actually services rendered for the payments? Uh, was it truly arm's length, fair dealing? So there are a lot of secondary questions that emerge. I mean, in general, one American is allowed to give another American a lot of money, but then there are all these constraints around it of the tax code and of the ethics code. And it's there that I think he runs afoul. He may well be shown to have run afoul of many. Let's say uh, for the sake of argument that I'm a federal judge, any one of those federal judges, and you, my friend, decided to give me, let's call it $100,000, which is the estimated cost of the education grant for the grandnephew. Would I have to disclose that? And would that be allowed? So the first thing that you would do if you had any question about it, obviously the most honest thing to do is to simply up and disclose it. And Thomas did up and disclose a payment very like that early on, a $5,000 payment towards this young person in his household who he was the guardian of. And then if you had any question about it, you would take that question to the Financial Disclosure Committee, which is a committee of your fellow judges set up for just that purpose within the Judicial Conference, which is the administrative body within the judiciary that enforces uh, these things and uh, sets the rules. So uh, unfortunately, he did neither. He did neither disclose nor went to the proper authority to find out that he should have disclosed. Do you find it curious that in some of these cases, uh, Justice Thomas has said that the disclosure rules were confusing to him, yet he is uh, one of nine most powerful judges who interpret laws for a living? I mean, is that a credible claim? When I mentioned that some of the excuses did not really pass scrutiny, Mm -hmm. that was definitely one. For instance, not disclosing income to his wife is really simple. There is a form and it has a question that says, disclose all sources of income for your spouse over $1,000. It's really hard to go wrong with that. Right. With respect to the jet travel, the only exemption from disclosure is for what's called personal hospitality, which is defined as meaning food, lodging, or entertainment, not jet travel. So all you have to do is read the requirement that it be food, lodging, or entertainment, and you should know that the jet plane trips don't count. How about yacht trips to New Zealand? I think that that's where you'd want to go and ask the question just to be sure. Mm -hmm. But one could argue that there is lodging provided on a yacht when you're on it for a number of days, that it's the equivalent to a floating hotel. I think that if you ask that question of the financial disclosure committee, they would say, not so fast. Uh, I think that you should disclose this because it would look like travel expense to a lot of people and you should err on the side of disclosure, which I think is the reason that he did not ask. 
So obviously my questions are a bit ironic uh, because it seems that on its face, even just the appearance of impropriety is a problem, right? And that so much money has flowed from uh, Harlan and then also this gentleman, Leonard Leo, who you've called the fixer from the Federalist Society who channeled what is reported to be roughly $80,000 to Jenny Thomas, which was also not disclosed. How can we not look at the totality of all these claims and make some assumptions that in fact there is some trafficking of influence or at the very least the attempt to create a very favorable disposition on the part of a Supreme Court justice? I don't see how you can. I think um, it's particularly important to understand the context of all of this. Mm -hmm. I think just, just on their own, paying somebody, a judge's mother's rent and their child who their guardian of's tuition and taking them on multiple very expensive vacations all should be disclosed just as a general principle and should be avoided, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, as a general principle. But then you look at the sources of these gratuities and you have a very right-wing billionaire, very active in right-wing political activity, supporting groups like the Federalist Society through which the list of justices that gave Thomas his supermajority on the court supposedly came. And Leonard Leo, who was probably the architect of that list and who has devoted his life to capturing the court for his right-wing billionaire supporters, these are people who are not just there as friends of Clarence Thomas. They are uh, full-on uh, agents of political influence. And just to be clear for our listeners, the Federalist Society has become almost a stand-in for the Judiciary Committee, right? Uh, for uh, conservative judges, they go through that process even before they're proposed as a potential nominee. What is the role of the Federalist Society in creating this, at the very least, appearance of corruption? Well, very interesting. Um, it has multiple roles. First of all, it's a campus organization for law students of a conservative bent. And in that role, there's nothing wrong with it. It is also a sort of um, think tank type shop in Washington, D.C. And it's no smellier than average <laughs> uh, among Washington, D.C. think tank shops. So there's nothing all that peculiar about that. Where it became very peculiar is when it became the sort of sounding board and credentialing place for people who wanted to get on the court. And in order to make that work, you had to signal how you were likely to rule on questions that were important to the big donors behind the operation. And that reached its real nadir when Trump was president and a list was put together for him of the justices who he could consider. And he promised publicly that he would pick off of that list. That list was referred to as the Federalist Society list, but Interestingly, the Federalist Society had no proceedings of any kind to generate the list. It looked like they just provided the venue in whose back room a bunch of billionaires got together with Leonard Leo and cooked up a list. So there's a lot more to find out about where that list was generated because it's not the Federalist Society allowed it, its name to be used as cover there, but it did not actually generate that list. 
Uh, I didn't realize. So when we look a little bit deeper into the role of uh, Ginny Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas's wife, who has been uh, described as an advocate for conservative causes, she's also been linked to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But prior to that, she has been involved in a series of politically focused nonprofits that seem to have received dark money donations. Is it really a big leap uh, for us to think that that is really a vehicle for Mr. Thomas, Justice Thomas, to receive funding? Well, it certainly would flow through to his household. And where that becomes a particularly acute issue is when, in his official capacity, he is making decisions that relate to her activities and having not disclosed any of this insists on going ahead in cases in which I think the far better argument is that he should have recused himself. The most famous one is, you mentioned the January 6th insurrection activities. He ruled in a case on the January 6th commission's powers to investigate uh, an investigation which turned up emails involving and texts involving his wife. And his excuse for not having recused himself was that he did not know anything about this. Well, that's a fact question. And as a fact question, it lends itself to investigation. And there has been no investigation of whether that fact is true. That answer was just kind of brooded out into the news media. But to my knowledge, nobody has ever actually asked Clarence Thomas, what did you know and when did you know it about your wife's activities related to the insurrection? And it's on that fact, on that determination that the propriety or unlawfulness of his participation in the case swings. So it's a key question. And how will you get to the answer? Because uh, there's been, at least publicly, uh, a level of frustration that uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, uh, has not taken the lead in trying to establish, for example, a code of ethics or try to create some transparency around a lot of these events, but in fact has rejected the opportunity to testify in, in front of Congress and seems to be, I don't know, uh, comfortable with the status quo. What do you think should be happening from the court itself at this stage? I think that very definitely what should be happened from the court itself is that it should be bringing in other judges, people who are of distinction and putting a group together and having a fairly public discussion of how do we fix this. And I think if they did that, they'd find out quite quickly from all the circuit court chief judges that every single one of the circuit courts of appeal has a pretty smoothly operating process for making sure that ethics complaints are received evaluated, investigated, that a conclusion is reached, and that there's a report of the conclusion. That's pretty basic stuff. That's kind of, you know, doing your administrative work 101. And the court has none of it. So I think if they asked, they would find that there's a very ready-to-hand process that could help them through these problems. I think that Justice Roberts does not want to ask because of blowback from within the court. And I think a lot of the blowback from within the court is going to be because the uh, they're playing out of bounds of the rules and they'd be caught playing out of bounds. I guess for regular people, we have to pay our parking fines, we have to pay our taxes, we have to behave in a certain way in society. And when we don't, uh, there are penalties and the law is quite strict and prosecutors are quite uh, <laughs> determined to make sure the law is complied with. Why are these nine people basically an aristocracy of privilege or, or I don't know if you would use a different phrase, but why are they uniquely privileged in this republic? Uh, it is unique. 
and there is no good substantive reason why they should be. I think the short answer is they got used to not having to be accountable to anybody. They started playing outside the chalk lines. Once they were playing outside the chalk lines, it became objectionable to them to have rules like other judges have, and they just hoped they could kind of bluff their way through it. And I think that's what they're up to right now. I think the court's just closed up like a turtle and is hoping this all blows over without them having to change. I think the difference this time, I suspect, is that a lot of the judges on the federal bench, and particularly those in the judicial conference, are really getting fed up. First, with the bad behavior of the courts, which they know perfectly well is not proper. Second, with the fact that there's no system at the court to correct itself so they can expect that the bad behavior will continue. And third, and probably worse for the other judges, the court pretending that this is all okay, that this is all normal, which imputes to the rest of the judges the implication that they might actually be behaving in similar ways. And they know perfectly well that they're not because their own ethics procedures would forbid and catch that kind of activity. So they're being kind of smeared by implication by the court in addition to being witnesses, knowledgeable witnesses to its transgressions. And I think the pot is beginning to boil over there. Well, let's pan out a little bit. As you know, the approval for the court uh, has flipped from roughly two-thirds approval to now two-thirds disapproval roughly in the in the last 10 years or so. Uh, this, of course, is hugely um, impactful for the ability of the court to operate. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army, obviously. It has its own reputation and institutional role to play when it decides something in the country. What's your sense of the threat to democracy that this current uh, murky ethical situation is provoking? I think the current murky ethical swamp that the court is in first does damage to the reputation and standing of the court. Because it's very easy to understand if you're a school teacher or a county regulatory official or a municipal employee who can't take lunch from somebody in the sandwich place across the street for $14, that this is out of control. So that's a very bad outcome for the court. But I think the worst outcome is the way that the court has subjected itself to the will of these right-wing billionaires and is now rendering decisions regularly and reliably that serve their interests. And there's a point at which the statistical anomaly of siding with the right-wing billionaires every single damn time they want you to begins to pile up. And that is the worst damage to the court because it's really a dereliction of judicial duty. So let's uh, close the circle where we began. Um, uh, what can you tell the American people about the future? How will this situation be resolved? And what role do you think, specifically the uh, Judiciary Committee, but more broadly the Congress has in fixing this problem? It would be best if Chief Justice Roberts were to grasp the nettle, to use an old phrase, uh -huh. <laughs> and just do it. Just say, look, folks, this is what we're going to do. Every other circuit court of appeals has a system. We can have it too. And we can design one that is going to completely lawful and appropriate and doesn't interfere with either our uh, supremacy in the judicial system or our place in the separation of powers. It is not hard work to do. And I think that's the thing that he should do. And that's the way that this should be solved. But I think given what's gone on, 
if they refuse to do it, if the solution is just to clam up and pay no attention to the public's concern, it's on us now in Congress to legislate a proper code of ethics and a proper process for enforcing it, which, in my view, we should model on what all the other courts are doing. We don't need to invent anything very new. And Senator, final question. Are you optimistic this can actually come to pass? Can you fix, if they won't fix it themselves, do you have the uh, institutional capacity and also the political will collectively of the other members, the other 99 senators, to make this happen? I would not say that we have that political will tomorrow, but I don't think this problem is going away. And I think between the pressure from the judges on Chief Justice Roberts to solve this problem for once and for all, and the continued need and pressure from the public to clean up the court uh, so that Congress will eventually act, I think one road or the other will ultimately be followed. It's just been too wrong, too inexplicable, too arrogant, and too damaging for everybody to just walk away when we get tired of the issue. All right. On that solemn note, uh, Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Back in the 1960s, when asked to define pornography, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously said that we know it when we see it. I was reminded of that famous phrase when contemplating Harlan Crow's luxurious gifts to Justice Thomas. When thinking about what corruption of the Supreme Court looks like, it might be as simple as knowing it when we see it. I want to thank Senator Whitehouse for his candid views today, and I want to thank the Issue 1 production team, Nicole Legacy, Sidney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue 1.